Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, man, if we were at VBS, I would make you do that three or four more times just to make sure you're with me. Had a great time at VBS this week. I haven't worked with a VBS in, uh, I don't know, probably since 1994, I guess. And it was a blast. So at first I thought I was just going to be the MC. No problem, I can do that. And then I ended up being a group leader too. And so it was great. <laughs> I loved it. It was great to be uh, with, with little ones and um, hearing their responses to what we're talking about. And there's such genuine responses from, from little kids. You know, there was, uh, there was a time we were sitting here and we were having our, our Bible lesson. And um, they were talking about, do you like to clean your house? Do you like to do this, you know, and keep your room clean and all that? And a few people raised their hands just because they wanted to raise their hands, I think. And one, one little boy who was probably five years old, he raised his hand. He was sitting right beside me. And he said, uh, he said, well, I don't really like to clean my house, but I sure like the way it looks. And I thought, I love working with kids. <laughs> it's great. All right. So before we continue, let's uh, go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, this morning is about you. Your word is about you. Our lives are becoming more and more about you. Pray that you would be lifted up today. Pray that you would meet us where we are. Lord, help us to set aside the distractions, the uh, things that are on our minds, what we're going to be doing later, what we've been doing, challenges in our lives not to forget about them, not to do away with them, not that they're not important. But Lord, help us to engage with you this morning, to be open to what you have to say to us. Move in our hearts. Lord, we confess that we're a, often a hard-hearted people, stubborn and we want our own way. So we consciously submit to you right now Submit the remainder of our time. Pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray that uh, you would meet us here, that you would be lifted up, that you would do a work in our hearts, in our relationships, that we would be more and more centered and focused on you, that we would become more like your son. But Lord, to do that, we need your help. And so we pray for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, you all know, we were missionaries in Russia for a couple of years, and uh, it was my desire to look as much like a Russian as I could. Not that I could change my stature or anything like that, but uh, there's a certain way they dress, and so I would wear dark clothes like Russians wear, and they wear fancy shoes, what we would consider fancy shoes. Anytime they go out, they would have really nice shoes on, and usually they're some fancy Italian shoes or some plastic imitation of those fancy Italian leather shoes. And uh, so I, you know, got the same kind of shoes and, and, uh, you know, did my best to imitate the way they, you know, they stand really close to each other. And so I learned to do that same thing. I'm from the same place you guys are from, and I'm used to having a little bit of distance between me and the folks around me. And, um, but I would, you know, I learned to stand right next to them and, and whatever, and, and changed quite a few things about, about, uh, my appearance and about the way I behaved and things like that, because I was trying to look like a Russian. I was trying to fit in. And it was funny because no matter how hard I worked on it, nobody ever mis mistook me for a Russian. I, I don't get it. Now, Stephanie, they mistook her for a Russian all the time, all the time. 
But me, never. They just never did. They always knew I was not from there anyway. They didn't know exactly where I was from. Until I went to Armenia, and then they all thought I was Russian. So it, it worked, worked out okay. I looked way different than the Armenians, and I kind of fit in better in Russia. So, But one, one thing that always stuck out about me, no matter what else I changed, no matter how well I spoke, no matter how good my accent was or whatever else I paid attention to and whatever else I got figured out, I cannot walk like a Russian. Did you know that? I, I walk like an American. I walk like my dad, right? This is the way I walk. Russians walk differently. And they can look at you and they can see that you walk differently. For us, we might think that's something, you know, we might catch our attention to see a Russian walk. But for them, they, they pick out right away, that guy's not Russian, just by the way he walks. It's pretty interesting, just because the way I grew up walking. I, I, I don't understand it, but they could pick me out of a crowd. And they wouldn't know necessarily where I was from, but they would know that I was not of them, that I was foreign, that I had not grown up there. Open your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 3, if you would, and we're going to dive back into this. And John has been writing to this church that he's got this relationship with, and some people had snuck in, and they looked just like everyone else. Then they, you know, they, they taught, they started, you know, they gained positions of authority within the church, and they, were, they became teachers and things like that. And, and, uh, but John is writing to them. These guys were actually false teachers. And John is writing to them saying, you have false teachers in your midst, and here are some ways that you can figure out who they are. Some tests so that you can see who is not of you. Who is not one of you? And he actually gets more specific about it. He gets, he gets, he uses pretty strong language. Actually, he starts talking about that you can determine who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. Who is of the devil? He uses really harsh language, and so he's going to go into that and he's going to spell out a little bit of how they can tell that. And uh, in our passage today, which is chapter three, verses four through ten, I'll read that in just a second. You're going to hear lots of phrases like everyone who does or whoever does or no one who does. So like some broad kind of categorizations. And what he's trying to do is he's laying out some some uh, characteristics that are going to be true of this group and some characteristics that are going to be true of this group. Okay, so he, he's speaking in kind of broad terms here and we'll spell that out a little bit more. But he's, he's talking about about general behavior. He's talking about practices or uh, you know, patterns of life. All right. Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in, in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, right away, I haven't even commented on it. And I'm certain that there's a certain level of discomfort 
for, for some people. This is harsh language. This is strong. This is not the way we talk. I haven't even commented on it yet. And it's, it kind of raises up something. But, 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 but Pastor Lutzer, the pastor of uh, Moody Church, used to call it the, motor, the motorboat response. But, 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 I don't know. It raises up something in us. We don't like it. We don't like to hear it. But we're going to dive into it anyway because it's, the, it's God's word, right? And we want to learn what it says. First of all, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, first of all, I want to talk about what sin is not, okay? What sin is not? Sin is not simply a mistake, I made a mistake. I meant to write this letter and instead I wrote that letter. Or, you know, some simple, amoral decision. It's not a mistake. It's not something simple like that. Sin is, is not not quite measuring up. You know, I almost got it. I just almost did it. But, I, I, you know, I just missed it by a little bit. You know, I, I did my best and I, I tried my hardest and I just fell a little bit shy. That's, that's not sin. That's not what he's talking about. Okay. It's not just that you did your best and you just came up a little bit short. Sin is not a, a, a shortcoming. You know, I, I just, you know, it's, it's kind of the way I am and I have a really tough time doing that. And, you know, it's, that's just who I am. That's not what he's talking about. That's not sin. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. There's a more active concept to it. It's active rebellion against God. That's what sin is. It's not a, a mistake, a, a little mistake. Oh, you know, whoops, whoops. I didn't quite get it. I didn't, didn't quite do it right. It's active rebellion against God. It is intentional disobedience. We know what to do and we don't do it. Or we know we shouldn't do something and we do it. Intentional disobedience. To put it more strongly, it is siding with God's enemy against him. That's what sin is. That's the, the idea over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It talks about the man of lawlessness. And it spells out who this guy is. And what, what is in his heart. And who is the man of lawlessness? Well, it's, it's the Antichrist. And he talks about some characteristics of, of this man of lawlessness. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Well, tell us more about that guy. Well, he's the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or any other object of worship so that he takes his own seat in the temple as God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the man of lawlessness, and that's the characteristic that we portray when we sin. We are taking that sort of an attitude. We're setting ourselves up in place of God. We really want to be our own boss. We really want to be our own boss. That's, that's, that's kind of the nature of uh, within our hearts. And if, if you think about Looking back even at Satan and the, the earliest accounts that we have about, about him and his fall, he was created, he was the highest created being. Well, that wasn't good enough. He wanted to be higher. 
He, he, he coveted God's position. And so he wanted to set himself up as God. And so he created his own little kingdom. And he's God of that kingdom. And that, that's the way he's done it. And then he sneaks into the Garden of Eden. You've got two innocent people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And he comes and he talks to Eve. And what lie does he tell her? There, there, was, only, there was only one rule there. And that rule was stay away from this fruit of this particular tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only rule they had. And he comes in and he says, you know what? God knows that if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will be like God. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that seemed pretty good to Eve. So what did she do? She took it. And then Adam took it. And we've all been taking it ever since. We want that position. We want to be like God. We want to be our own boss. We will call our own shots. That is the nature that's within each of us. We have that. The word lawlessness in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is very closely connected with satanic power, satanic influence. And when he says sin is lawlessness, it puts sin in a whole other category than we normally think. He wants us to understand, have a different attitude about sin than we normally do. It's just not, not, not just some little thing. It's a huge deal. It's rebellion against God. And if we look up at the previous paragraph that uh, Woody preached on last week, look at verse 3 there. I think it makes even more sense. It comes even, even into sharper focus when we look at verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so you already begin to establish two, two different lines, two different uh, ways that are being developed in people's lives. Someone who hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. So the more he goes, he's purifying himself, becoming more and more pure. As opposed to someone who practices sin, who is siding with God's enemy, Satan. And as they go on, they're in more and more rebellion, more and more, and there becomes a greater and greater chasm between the two. Those who hope in Christ become more and more like him as they grow more like him. But the person in verse 4, on the other hand, is diametrically opposed to God. As time goes on, the distance between the two of them gets greater and greater. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. So the first thing that we need to know about the true nature of sin is that it is lawlessness. It is active disobedience to God. So next we'll look at what's the relationship between sin and Jesus. Sin and Jesus. We find that in verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. I didn't know this was going to be the memory verse for, for the month, but it just worked out that way. He appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. So a central reason, purpose for Jesus coming to this earth was for the purpose of taking away sin. He came to take it away. He's at enmity with it. His mission was to do away with it. He wanted to, to remove its influence from this world and from our lives. He came to conquer sin, to defeat it. And he did. And as such, sin is his defeated enemy. All of mankind was in slavery to sin. And Jesus came to set people free from it. He came to make war on sin. So that's Jesus' attitude towards sin. That's his, that's his relationship to sin. 
But he didn't just come to take it away. It says that there's no trace of sin in him. It has no pull on him. It has no hold on him. I'll read a couple of passages. 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or Titus chapter 2, where it says, Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, what does he yell out? I should ask the high school kids. They should know this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the purpose of his coming, to take away sin, to deal with sin. He had no sin of his own, and he came to this earth to take away sin. In doing that, he, he took our sin and the punishment that we deserved on himself so that we wouldn't have to pay it. So the relationship between sin and Jesus, I think, is pretty clear. There's a stark contrast between him and sin. And that relationship is a key part of understanding the good news of salvation in Christ. It's a key part of it. So what about the relationship between sin and the believer? Here's where it gets right down to us. Sin and the believer. No one who abides in him, this is verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I read that and I reread it and then I didn't want to read it. And then I reread it. That's a tough one. But let's remember, the one who hopes in Christ purifies himself as Christ is pure. So as a result of Jesus' own opposition to sin and his own activities against sin, his conquering sin, there will be certain results in the life of the person who follows Christ. Stands to reason. Those who abide in the sinless one, Jesus, who came to this world to take away sin, they have a similar disposition towards sin that Jesus does. They can't continue in sin while also claiming to continue in Jesus. doesn't make sense. If someone's life is characterized by sin, then he says they haven't truly seen who God is or the Son of God or come to know him in any real way. Now, we've heard this a couple times in 1 John already. Chapter 2 and verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then 3.3, 3, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. All right? So, the nature of sin is that it is lawlessness. It is active rebellion against God. It's not some mistake or, whoops, I did that. It's active rebellion. And there is no sin in Jesus. And in fact, he came specifically to do away with sin. And so those who abide in him will have a similar character in opposition to sin. It's impossible to abide in Jesus and also at the same time abide in him or in, in sin. Okay? So sin has the nature that it has because of the origin that it has. So let's look at the origin of sin. Now, Russians are very observant people. I mentioned that they could, they could pick out my walk as being non-Russian. Okay, they could look at me and they would think I would know right away that I wasn't Russian just by the way I walk. But they're, they're more uh, specific even. They can look at a person at the structure of their face and tell what your ancestry is. 
I, I don't get it. I really don't get it. And it seems crazy to me, but they do it again and again. They can look at your face, the structure of your face, and, and say, oh, yeah, you're German. They don't know your last name. They don't know where you're from. They don't know anything about you, but they can look and see that you have German ancestry. It's crazy. I, I, I don't get it. But uh, we, we had a um, mission team from the Moody Church come and, and do some work. And there was a girl there who was, I don't, she was from some Eastern European country that I, I can't even remember. I can't even remember which one it was. And Russians looked at her and knew where she was from just by looking at her face. And I mean, she, she grew up in Chicago. Her parents grew up in Chicago. She just had that last name and that, that was her heritage. They knew that. They could look and they could see. There were characteristics that were visible. Now, oddly, or interestingly, when they looked at Stephanie, they thought she was Russian. They were certain she was Russian. And we found out later why. Because her family had come through Russia and lived there for generations. So there must have been some sort of intermarrying or something, connection with Russians. But they could look and see that she was Russian. Sorry, sweetie, I'm done talking about you. (laughs) All right, let's look back to 1 John 3. All right, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All right, so John is giving a really clear-cut test here. I didn't tell you the title of it. It's called Paternity Revealed. Paternity Revealed. And he's giving you a test for how you can reveal the paternity of someone. And it's simple. And you can find out whether they're, the person is related to Christ or related to the devil. And I don't like it. It's not fun. But he's saying, don't be taken in by words. Okay, talk is cheap. You've got to look at the fruits. Look at a person's life. Look at, look at the characteristics of their life, their lifestyle, how it plays out. Look at that, and that will help you person whose life is characterized by right living and by godliness, he says, is righteous. Jesus himself is righteous and he's pure. And so those who are true believers, true followers of him, will have a similar lifestyle, righteous and pure. In fact, they are, right, they are righteous precisely because Jesus is righteous. So they are truly born of God and they show it in their actions, in their lifestyle. Now, the giant elephant in the room that everyone's thinking about right now is, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, I have, have sin in my own life. I, you know, I still deal with sin for one thing. So what does that mean about me? And second of all, didn't John talk about this issue? And didn't he talk about it from a different direction? Flip, flip back just probably one page in your Bible to chapter one. He talks about this. Starting in verse eight. All right, so just remembering what we just read in verses 7 and 8 in this, this test that he's putting out there. Now look at uh, chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. All right. So you've got two different ideas. We have to work these ideas together, okay? Chapter 1 tells us pretty clearly. Look, if you say you're sinless, the truth is not in you. You're deceiving yourselves, and you're making God a liar. Okay? Those are not good things to do that, right? So better not say we have no sin, but at the same time we come over here, and he says the person who abides in Christ is righteous as he is righteous. 
All right, so we have to work these two ideas together. What he's not talking about is sinless perfection. All right, I think we can all look at our own lives and even those around us. I don't normally, you know, want us to look at the lives of people around us to, you know, to compare that way, but we're all sinful, all right? So we're not claiming sinless perfection. We wouldn't want him to be claiming sinless perfection. But two chapters earlier in this book, he just said, if you claim sinless perfection, you're deluded. All right? So we have to work these ideas together. What we are talking about in this passage is not sinless perfection, but rather it's a lifestyle of forsaking sin and turning away from it. A lifestyle of forsaking sin and turning away from it. And when we do sin, we confess it, we feel remorse, and we turn from it. It's a lifestyle of hating sin. We're not perfect at it. We haven't been perfected yet, but that's what the lifestyle is about. On the other hand, you have people whose life is characterized by sin characterized by sin and their relationship to sin is completely different from that of believers you see they they might hate the consequences of sin they might even hate getting caught in sin but they don't have any hatred of the sin itself that's fine with them it's fine with them if they do it they just don't want to pay any consequences they don't want anyone to know they do such a thing but yeah the sin that's no big deal that's that's the characteristic of their life no hatred for it and such a person, John says, is not born of God. He's of the devil, he says. And I still shake my head. That is strong language. That is strong language. But you know, Jesus used very similar language in John chapter 8 when he was talking to the religious leaders there. He was telling them, look, the truth will set you free. And they kind of took offense to that because they thought they were already free and had never served anyone and this you know they they weren't slaves or whatever he told them actually they were slaves they're slaves to sin and they weren't acting like abraham their father at all the one they claimed as their father weren't acting like him at all they were trying to kill jesus they were acting just like their spiritual father the devil and he comes out and says there in in john chapter 8 verse 44 he says you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus used some, some similar strong language, okay? And I, I still don't enjoy it. But what he's talking about is a general attitude and characteristic towards sin, that the sin is fine, no big deal, I just don't want to get caught in it. As opposed to the believer's attitude towards sin, which is, I sometimes fall into it and I hate it. I hate it. Confess it to God. Forsake it. Turn away from it and walk, it away, from, walk away from it. That's the difference, the distinction between the two. And remember, who's, who's he writing about? He's not just writing so that they can identify someone in their midst who's not a believer. He's writing to identify someone in their midst who is a false teacher who has snuck in and is trying to lead them astray with a false gospel. That's who he's identifying. And that, I think, explains the strong language that he uses there. So Jesus came to this earth. 
for the very purpose of destroying the works of the devil. And Satan stands against God's authority in any way that he can. Think about what what Satan does. Satan wants to set himself up as God. And if there's a time when he's not able to do that, then he will at least want to diminish the glory of God, diminish someone else's honoring God or obedience to him. That's the works of the devil. He's trying to lessen how awesome God is, which is the one correct use of the word awesome, how awesome God is. And Satan wants to diminish that. He wants to lower that, make it less. And he does that in the life of the unbeliever, no problem. And he tries and tries and tries to do that in the life of the believer also in the, in the same way. It's a tough thing. Our paternity is revealed by our lifestyle. So now let's look at the same issue, but from the other direction. Let's look at paternity's results. Paternity's results. Same issue, just coming at it from the other direction. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Just like the Russians are able to look and see your ancestry by looking at your facial structure in some mystical way that I don't get, the same way that they can do that, someone who's truly born of God has certain telltale characteristics. Certain things are true about him. One of them, one of these characteristics is that he doesn't make a practice of sinning. If you were to characterize this guy's life, it is not characterized by sin. It may be marred by sin here and there, depending upon how well you know them, because it is marred by sin here and there. But it's not characterized by sin. Why is it true that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning? Why is that true? Well, it says here, because God's seed abides in him. God's seed abides in him. There's a transformation that happens when someone becomes a believer, when someone puts their faith in Christ. Whereas they used to be spiritually dead, God makes them alive in their spirit. He gives his own Holy Spirit to them, to live in them. He makes life where there used to be death. So this person is now alive. And they can't die. It's called eternal life. Not temporary life. It's eternal life. It never ends. So he he has birthed that within the new believer, within someone who has trusted Christ. And that life cannot die and cannot go away. It will grow and mature and lead that person closer and closer to, to Christ as their life progresses. And that's why he can say no one who's been born of God makes a practice of sinning. He can't. God's seed abides in him and is leading that person to Christ more and more. So as a person's life progresses, it's not a, it's not a, I'm drawing a straightish line here and it's not necessarily a straight line. But as a person's life progresses in Christ, they become more and more like him. He purifies himself as he is pure. Our paternity has visible results in our lives. John says that a person born of God cannot keep on sinning because God's seed abides in him. So those are paternity's results. So now let's recap a little and look at paternity in review. Paternity in review, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
that is a concise, simple, by no means easy test. Very concise, very short. To summarize everything that's been said to this point, John says, here's how you determine who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he adds another huge, huge factor, nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. And the next paragraph is going to talk about that exactly. The next paragraph moves on and starts talking about uh, love that, that believers have for one another, that there's a, there's a love there that, that will be evident. But for now, he simply says that the one who does not practice righteousness and love his brother, love other Christians, is not of God. All right. So John is talking to Christians. He's made that case again and again that he he has every confidence in the faith of these people he's talking to. Has every confidence in them. So what's he hoping to accomplish by writing to a bunch of Christians and telling them this is how you can tell? Well, the first of all is is to give them a litmus test to identify these false teachers who are in their midst or have been in their midst. To identify them as false teachers so that you can set them out. And the second is to exhort them to continue to pursue righteousness in their own lives. And that way they can continue to reassure themselves of their right standing before God. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 is is a very similar passage to this. And it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Keep sin out, keep sin out, keep sin out because it is deceitful. It hardens your heart and it keeps you from him. And so he's talking about even as in relationships, exhorting one another to that end. I see, I see some sin, maybe, maybe you know, two, two friends or even a husband and wife or whatever. I see this thing and it's going to harden your heart. Set that aside. Pursue him. Set that aside. Very similar. The thing is, we need exhortation in our lives to spur us on to keep following him more and more. We need that exhortation. I read a book once by a man named Jonathan Edwards, and he's probably the greatest thinker that America has ever produced. He lived in the 18th century in New England, and he was a pastor and president of a university and, and wrote tons of books. And one of his books that he wrote was called Religious Affections. Religious Affections. And he was doing all kinds of things in that book, but one thing he was trying to do was to help you evaluate your own life and see, is my faith genuine? And it was a very similar test to this. It was about lifestyle, about the pattern of your life. Is my faith genuine? And he would say, he, he would want to encourage people. He's writing it so that you would be encouraged, that you look at yourself and, and see, yeah, I really do trust the Lord. He really is working in my life. I really am a child of God. He's doing something. He's making changes in my life. He's taking me there. And something that he said that adds a little bit to, to what John is talking about here He says, the more you grow, the more sure you are in your faith, the more assurance you have, the more joy that you have. Not in any kind of uh, way that puffs you up or makes you proud or arrogant that, yeah, I've walked with Jesus for so many years or whatever. But it's just a greater confidence between you and the Lord because you have seen him work in your life more. You've seen him eradicate sin from your life. You've seen him help you to purify yourself as john says as jesus is pure 
So the longer we walk with him, the more confidence we have in him that we actually know and we actually are his child. Not because we had little confidence before, but because now we have so much more evidence to be confident as we go on. We have more and more evidence. It's an encouraging thing. It's encouraging to me. All right, so let's move on to application. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, one part of what I get from what John is saying here is about this test. And his test is true Christians walk in righteousness. All right, that's the test. All right, so examine your own heart. And let's say the result is, yeah, I'm a believer. I walk in righteousness. Then his message to you is continue walking in righteousness. Continue pursuing that. Continue purifying yourself as he is pure. Continue following after him. That's the first one. Don't stop. Don't stop. The second one is that we need to get in our minds, I need to get in my mind, just how insidious sin is. We need to understand its, its nature. It's not some trivial and light little thing. I ran across a word in my reading I never heard before, peccadillos. Never even heard of that. Have you, have you heard of that? Like little sins, like little white sins kind of thing. Like, nah, no big deal. Eh. That is not the nature of sin. Sin is enmity with God, and that needs to be our attitude. So we need to have that in our mind about sin. When we know something is sin, avoid it like the plague. Don't flirt with it or fiddle with it or jump into it. Avoid it. To commit that sin is to turn against your God and actively wage war against him. Instead, look to Christ, who, is in every, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In fact, the very reason for his coming was to take away sin. We need to remember that sin is lawlessness. Thirdly, for application, do you want to avoid sin? And I hope you do. I do. If so, then from this passage, abide in him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Okay, I've always wondered. I know the definitions and whatever, and I've read all kinds of stuff about it. Abiding. What does abiding mean? And an illustration came to me just a couple weeks ago, and let let me see what you think about it. Abiding in Christ. What is that? Abide, remain. What does that mean to to abide in him? Well, I think about it this way. When I talk with a small child, and we just had we just had VBS, and so you have lots of little you know conversations with little kids. What do you have to do? With some kids, you have to get right in front of their face and you have to almost hold them looking at you because you want them to stay engaged with you. Stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. Don't be distracted by that or this or whatever, right? You gotta keep them right there with you. You want them to abide, to to stay with me. Stay right here, engaged in this conversation, not in this or this or this or whatever, okay? It's the same thing when when kids get older, particularly, um, well, I remember very particularly when I was a teenager, the way I, you know, if I was done with a conversation with my parents, I might still be physically present in the room, but nobody was home, you know, there was nothing there. My parents wanted me to stay with them, abide with, stay here, stay here, stay here. We're not done with the conversation, keep engaged. And that's why we insist on eye contact with our kids. You want them to be right there. Continue thinking this thought with me. It may be uncomfortable for you, and it may be a little bit boring and long, but stay with me. That's what we want, that's what we want right? That's abiding. We're wanting our children to abide with us. Stay in the conversation. Stay thinking along this same line. Stay with me. 
don't, don't leave, don't, don't leave. Because we, in our hearts, naturally, the thing we want to do is when God tells us something hard or we feel conviction or something like that, we're, we're done. We don't want anything to do with that conversation. We might remain, we might stay there physically, but there is nothing going on. And he's saying, abide in him, abide in him. Stay with him, stay with him. Read his word, talk to him, listen to his spirit. Obey, obey, deal with it. If you disobey, that's stay with him, stay with him. There's forgiveness there. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That makes perfect sense, right? If you're right there with Jesus and you're right there engaged with him and he's got your head right there and you're not moving, you're just keeping eye contact, you're not going to keep on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And our, our fourth point has to do with the Lord's Supper. And so, men, if, if you guys could come forward, please. Let's think about what the gospel says about sin. The gospel says something that we all know, that we are sinners. We are a sinful people. The Bible says that the penalty for that sin is death. But it goes on. It's not all bad news. There's good news. It says that God loved us so much that he sent his son to take that sin on himself, to pay the penalty that we deserve. He took God's wrath on himself. He did it to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, the Bible said. He died a real death on a real cross. He gave his body and he gave his blood. And that's what we're commemorating today. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead to show that his payment was acceptable, his offering was acceptable, and that he had conquered sin and death. And finally, Jesus went back to be with the Father, but then he sent the Holy Spirit to live in us and stay with us to be our helper until he returns for us. That's what the gospel has to say about sin. So today's message is the truth about sin, and this is where it leads. This is where it leads. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid that penalty that we deserve. Now, we, we come to the Lord's table, and it's a, it's a special time, and, and um, we're, we're commemorating his body broken for us and his blood, his lifeblood spilled out for us. And it's because of the sin that's in our heart that this, that this happened. It's no small thing. Now, we do this to, to remind ourselves. It's to commemorate what's happened. It's a very special way to remember what we've been doing. So just before we start this, uh, just a note to, to parents about, about small children. This is, this is a serious thing, and, and uh, you need to know your own children, and you need to know where their hearts are, and whether they understand what we're talking about and what, what is meant here, and also whether they really trust Christ. As best, as best you can tell. So parents, I'll leave that with you to make the decision whether children should or should not take this. And also, just think about your own heart. We're going to have time as, as the elements are being passed out. You'll have time to pray. 
and just ask God to reveal to you sin in your own heart. Confess that. Stay right there with him. Stay there with him. Because he knows about your sin. It's not news to him. And he wants you to have open communication with him. Confess it to him. And he has forgiveness just ready to hand. He just loves to do that. So we need to take some time to just look at our own hearts in this situation. And then this will be us preaching the gospel, remembering what sin did and what Jesus very gladly did for us, what he came specifically to do. So that's what we're going to do. Also, one last thing. If you're sitting here and you're thinking that you have some, there's some sort of grudge between you and another person, or maybe you've, you've sinned against someone, it might be that you need to forego this today and go deal with that with that person. Rectify that relationship. You might need to ask for forgiveness. You might need to confess your sin to that person. Or you might need to go to them and offer forgiveness. But some relationships need to be healed. All right.